The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. When you take up love and compassion as a theme formally, like we did just now as a, in a meditation, as a particular meditation theme, or you just do it generally through your day as a more general um, way of shaping or directing your mind during your day, daily life. We want to make sure that we're using the flavor of love, of acceptance and forgiveness and patience in a way, you could say, integrated with wisdom so that we're not creating, we're not reinforcing a sense of good and bad, hope and fear. Where love is at one end, and then at the other end is a sense of a devil, pure evil, pure bad, and pure hate. So then love, the way we might conceive it, love is at war with hate. And who's in the middle? (laughs) You and me. If we conceive it that way. So we want to use, like the whole point of conceiving, uh, constructing or supporting the flavor of love in the mind and heart is to reflect on what's actually trustworthy, what actually has the flavor of safety. So, you know, you talked in your group um, together, one of the themes that you might have, people might have shared in the small groups is, you know, how have you in your experience how have you had moments where you've really modified the intensity of anxiety? It dissipated for a while. It maybe even disappeared for a while. The heart, the mind felt not burdened by anxiety. It's actually can be sort of a, a like an altered state sometimes when people... Um, are free of some anxiety, at least temporarily free. They don't know who they are. Because what's familiar for us mostly is the state of being somewhat, if not very much, anxious. Always feeling we have something to do. Or something to be remorseful of. So it's nice to, you know, as we take our practice forward in the weeks and months and years ahead, not just see it as our task to get interested in what the actual experience of anxiety is like, or what's that tightness in the heart like, or feeling of being burdened, weighed down. But maybe for a lot of us, more important is to direct our attention to What is our experience of safety? And becoming very clearly aware, having a really um, sophisticated, nuanced, refined sense of safety. Like, what does safety feel like? And what feelings or what experiences of safety seem to be more trustworthy? And what feelings of safety are less trustworthy? Like, we might be cuddled in our bed with our cat at the foot of the bed, and maybe if you live with someone, a partner, your partner there, spooning, right? That's the, you know, not only being in a fetal position, but being next to somebody else in a fetal position. (laughs) You know, and that sort of primal experience of having the warmth of a body like we had when we were a fetus inside a body. And uh, hearing another heartbeat and feeling another breath and, you know, sort of our primordial ocean that we have memories about, right? So that's a safe experience for some of us at some times, you know, the right person, the right place, the right time or whatever. But is that it? You know, is it sort of that relative safety of like being inside a solid structure with a whether the world is out there, it's a little bit like a superstructure. 
This is one of the nice things about backpacking, except nowadays equipment, equipment for backpacking is so nice, but because a lot of times our homes are like a, a physical manifestation of our own mental edifice, you know, all of our ideas and opinions and that sort of protect us, the ways we define ourselves, the ways we define each other and the world. We have that set of ideas. It's like living inside of a house. And then we actually create an actual house or an apartment or physical structure that we live inside of. And then we actually sometimes then take those physical structures we live inside of and we put them inside of other physical structures like a neighborhood and maybe even a gated neighborhood or some way a neighborhood that's, you know, feels safe. Inside the United States of America, you know, with our border security, you know, on our planet. I mean, it doesn't really end. And uh, so we use these ideas. They're all constructions, right? The United States of America is a construction. My apartment, my house, that's a construction. My bed, my partner, my body, all of these but they do provide a little bit of safety. So we want to look like, well, what is, where is the safety in that experience, whatever one you're bringing to mind? What is actually that experience of safety? Because this is what we normally take to be safety, as I was saying in the morning, is uh, something pleasant is arising, like the warmth, of being another next to another person, or maybe it's more you know more subtle than that, or more uh, extensive than that. Like this person is willing to be here with me. You know, we have an agreement that we're in this together, or something like that. Or just our place, my place. This is my place, my bed. I've made this. You know, I've made this come to be. It's my nest, my home, my routine, my group of friends. You know, you might imagine my auntie or my grandma or my mom who's really there for me even when I'm a jerk. So whatever that situation you're bringing to mind is, there's some either superficial or relatively subtle sense of pleasantness and a dependency. Like, uh, I can count on that. But of course, when we really look at it, it may be relatively stable, but we can't really count on it. This is why it's so shocking. Even if you're not someone who has spent a lot of time with your parents, and even if they weren't very good parents in some sort of objective standard, it's hard to lose a parent because on some level that we didn't realize we were counting on them being there. And then when they're not physically there, it, it reminds us that ground we thought was ground isn't really ground. It's groundless. So this is our, you know, we can take, this is a, when we feel secure enough, we can begin to ask questions about the safety that makes us secure enough, right? We're together enough. I mean, relatively safe people, relatively stable people. Then we can get interested in the safety that we have, being loved, being relatively competent. Like in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about the kinds of gifts that are really valuable. And you give people, you give a person food, you know, a meal, and you've taken care of, you've given them a little bit of safety for that day. They're not going to be hungry at least for that day. Or you give someone shelter and they're going to be able to sleep that night. And if you, you know, give somebody a skill where they can earn a few bucks, well, maybe they'll be able to then for a long time, because of that skill, as long as they're healthy, earn some bucks, buy a meal, and pay for some place to stay. And they feel a little, you know, that's a little bit more of a gift because the person can take care of themselves. And uh, 
if you're willing to really befriend somebody and sort of enter this mostly unspoken agreement that I'm there for you as much as I can be and you're there for me as much as you can be because we're friends or we're, you know, we're part of the tribe, part of the clan, part of the neighborhood, we work together or whatever that arrangement might be, then that's, that's a different, you know, maybe even a bigger kind of safety, this web of people that we're interrelated with, that we have this unconscious agreement that if I'm really in need, you'll step forward in a way that makes sense. And when you're really in need, I'm going to step forward for you in a way that makes sense. So that's another kind of safety. And then um, we have the safety of, of developing some kind of understanding. Like in this case, in the Buddhist sense, that it's okay. It's always been okay. It always will be okay. The messiness is okay. The beauty is okay. Even the horror, the terrible stuff, it's okay. So, you see, that developing that understanding then is like an immunity to the ups and downs of life, the gain and loss, the pleasure and pain, birth and death of life. So, in the Buddhist tradition, of course, that um, supporting somebody's wisdom or deepening of understanding is considered the greatest gift because that gift makes helps somebody become immune to needing gifts. You know, they, they literally, a human being can literally become independent. It doesn't mean they don't appreciate spooning with somebody at night or being given a nice meal or finding a safe place to live or any other number of ways that we create can have a pleasant sense of security. But it means that when those things don't arrive, it may be unpleasant, but the mind isn't turning the unpleasantness like the unpleasantness of dying or the unpleasantness of losing somebody we love or the unpleasantness of not knowing how we're going to buy our meal next or pay for our rent. It makes that unpleasantness, that insecurity, not the mind doesn't use the insecurity or the uncertainty to construct a personal story. I'm screwed. I need to. This is not okay. This isn't fair. It doesn't doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Like some people were wondering, like, well, are we going to get engaged? Are we going to try to do something to make the world a better place? It's like uh, back in the ninth century, this great monk, Shanti Deva, Buddhist monk in India, was talking about this. And he said, you know, in life, the dynamic, the up and down, that just is part of life, you know, sometimes when bad things happen, there's something we can do, which in that case, you should do it. You should do what can be done that supports the situation at hand that takes care of everybody. And sometimes when bad things happen, there's nothing to be done. And in which case, there's nothing to be done. But either either examples, there is something that can be done and you're going to do it, or there's nothing that can be done, so there's nothing that can be done. In either case, what's the point of getting tight, getting anxious, investing, constructing stories of fear? shouldn't be this way, can't be this way. So we can understand this now, I think all of us, intellectually. And so it's really a question of how do we begin to live into this? How do we begin to experiment with this kind of unconditioned freedom? So we don't necessarily want to go right to the biggest fear, place of biggest anxiety in our lives, whatever that might be. Some of you social anxiety or giving a talk in front of a group of people, other people, you know, anxiety around an important relationship. Is that going to, person going to be there for me? Should I be with that person? Financial insecurity. But we can begin in very 
small insecurities. And really see if we can peel away the tendencies to get tight, like to justify being tight and experiment with being more exposed, undefended with that. Let me read from a couple people here and then uh, I think what we'll do is have another small group where we talk about places of transformation and uh, and uh, maybe even places where you might like aspire to transform and learn some lessons about how uh, how to change how the heart relates to fear and uncertainty, like places you might begin this exploration. This is from a book that um, is quite useful in this this area, written by a um, famous Buddhist author and teacher, Pema Chodron, who is a nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. She's Western, though. And uh, if you haven't heard of her, she's just written a number of wonderful books, including the book, The Places That Scare You. See, right up our alley here. And chapter two is called Tapping Into the Spring. And she starts by quoting Albert Einstein. So I'll read that quote at the beginning of the chapter first. And before I forget, um, I use this chapter um, in a series of talks I gave at the Common Ground Winter Retreat over uh, President's Weekend. Maybe a couple of you were on that retreat. And so uh, we didn't record, I forgot to record one of the nights, but I think there were four talks on fear, working with fear, um, on our website. So if you look under the audio talks, I think they're called or something like that, then just scroll back until mid-February and you'll see talk on fear number one, number two, and something like that. So this is Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. One experiences oneself, one's thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affections for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from the prison by widening the circle of understanding and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And this gives us a real sense of this work that we're doing. So when we want to lift, just to use that, sort of metaphor, when we want to lift the mind, the heart, out of a narrow, heavy, dark place of anxiety or fear, then it's really about uh, widening, deepening, expanding the view, the perspective. And it's actually not as hard as we think. What seems to limit our capacity to open up, to have a bigger view, like, so specifically, the mind is understanding the pain that's present from a wider, deeper, more expansive perspective. Like the classic example in the Buddhist tradition is um, the woman that uh, was so distraught when her son died and you know she had experienced some real abuse in her life uh, coming from a poor family, being married into a wealthier family, and for years not being able to bear a son and you know in a very patriarchal society where the status for women back then and probably still today uh, had a lot to do with producing a male heir and so being married for a while be, being treated probably like dirt in her with her living with her in-laws not having a son you know all of the pressure so finally she has a son who then as an infant or as a young child dies. And she loses it, basically. Loses her mind a little bit or a lot. And refuses to believe the child is dead, even though the child has been dead now for a couple of days. Still clinging to the child. People, of course, are starting to freak out with her. And one person had enough sense to say, I know somebody who can help you. Even though this person knew the Buddha wouldn't be able to make the child come back to life. 
So she, he sends her, or she sends her to see the Buddha, and she shows up, and the Buddha says, yes, I can help you. It's true. I know just what to do. Because he understood that this, is, this was not the right moment to say, your son is dead. So he said, yes, I can help you. But first, I need, you know, so he's sort of pretending that he has some magic. He says, what I'll need is a, a mustard seed. Now, this is in India the most common thing. Everybody uses mustard seed for spicing their food. So every family, even the poorest family, would have some mustard seed. I need you to go get me some mustard seeds from a family. She said, no problem. He says, yeah, but one thing more. It has to be from a household that hasn't experienced death. Now, in those days, they didn't ship their older or sick people off to some hospital or some nursing home. You know, people died in the house all the time. So she set out thinking this should be easy or something like that. And of course, you, you see where this is going if you haven't heard the story before. One house after another, sure, we have mustard. Be happy to give you mustard. Oh, no, no. We've had this person or these people die here. Sorry. And, and again and again and again and again. And so after some number of homes that she had gone to, getting the same message, sure, we'd be happy to give you mustard. Oh, but we have had this person or that person who's died here. It just dawned on her mind that this tragedy, this death of my son, is not a personal thing. right? So this is just a very graphic, simple example of a mind expanding. Because what do we do? What does the mind do when something really painful happens? It Pain tends to contract the mind. The mind then sees from this narrow point of view. It doesn't see from an expansive point of view. So we need to train the mind or the mind has to be forced to have a big picture. And so she got it. She went back to the Buddha. She understood this wasn't personal. This is, some, this is the law. I forget exactly what she said to the Buddha when she returned. But she said uh, that she understood that this was the law. So they, she took care of her son. I forget if she, he was cremated or buried or something like that. And then ordained, became a nun, and in a very short time became fully awake. Uh, same insight as the Buddha. Right? So this happens a lot in the, in the suttas, in the discourses, that people, because they had such a potent example in the Buddha, and somebody who had a lot of intuition what kind of instruction to give the person so they could see what they weren't seeing. So now it's our turn you know, without a Buddha necessarily present, but just hearing the teachings at least and beginning to look at the, the sort of irritants in our own life where we have anxiety. And how can we do something like that? How can we go from where this irritant feels really intense? I, I have some good friends uh, that um, lived out in a be- one of the most beautiful places in Minnesota for many years, maybe even a couple decades, had a beautiful parcel of land next to one of our state parks. And then they're getting a little older, retired now, so they moved into town. And they bought a really nice place, I think a townhouse. And sure enough, next to them, some damn young people who are noisy, you know. And, uh, and they're used to living in this amazingly tranquil place. And now they're, you know, with these obnoxious people who do their obnoxious things, and it feels existentially threatening. You know, because they're there, they're stuck in a sense, and people have the right, you know, to within degrees to live the life as they want. And uh, so what are, you, what are we going to do? I remember Shinzen Young, one of our early teachers, Steve probably remembers Shinzen uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, he was somebody we invited out to Minnesota to teach our community, teach for our community. And uh, he tells, maybe you remember this, Steve, his example of going on retreat. And I don't know if he roomed or next door there was somebody who snored. And just, uh, you know, day after day after day, and getting, you know, really working with the disappointment and the powerful rage, like really wanting to hurt the person. 
put the pillow over the person. <laughs> Until acceptance, you know, where the mind understands it isn't personal. This person isn't personally trying to... And even if, if some things like mosquitoes, they are personally trying to penetrate our skin. But even that isn't personal, right? The, the fact that they're conditioning... In the same way that obnoxious person, maybe it more than snoring, they're, they're judging us or they're belittling us in some way. But even that's not personal. Or our partner is neglecting us or our boss is uh, abusing us or you know not treating us fairly or something like that. Every single situation, we start where it's easy, but every single situation, we can either personalize it or we can really work on depersonalizing it. It is possible to depersonalize it. So here's uh, Pema Children. That's a long lead-in. So they were doing some construction. She's got her monastery that she helped found up in Nova Scotia. And she travels a lot, but she's, that's her home base. And they were putting in a building, and they hit bed, bedrock when they were doing the foundation. And uh, the rock cracked. And after a little bit, some water started to seep out. And then over a little longer time, the crack widened and more water started to flow. And she uses this this as an example. She says, finding the basic goodness of bodhicitta, which means the awakened heart or the liberated heart. And the idea of bodhicitta is like that water. It's just waiting to move through. Something needs to crack. And that crack mostly happens when instead of running from anxiety, being driven by hope and fear, the heart relaxes into awareness, into trusting sensitivity of the unpleasantness of anxiety instead of being driven by it. Finding the basic goodness of bodhicitta, the awakened heart is like that, tapping into a spring of living water that has been temporarily encased in solid rock. When we touch the center of sorrow, when we sit with discomfort without trying to fix it, when we stay present to the pain of disapproval or betrayal and let it soften us, these are the times that we connect with bodhicitta, the awakened heart. Tapping into that shaky and tender place has a transformative effect Being in this place may feel uncertain and edgy, but it's also a big relief. Just to stay there, even for a moment, feels like a genuine act of kindness to ourselves. Being compassionate enough to accommodate our own fears takes courage, of course, and it definitely feels counterintuitive, but it's what we need to do. We have to accommodate our own fear. It's hard to know whether to laugh or cry at the human predicament. Here we are with so much wisdom and tenderness, right? This living water, to use her metaphor, just waiting to express itself. And what do we do? We cover it over to protect ourselves from insecurity, right? We batten down the hatches. Is that the phrase? (laughs) We batten down the hatches. We close the doors. We lock it all up because we don't want to feel what insecurity, uncertainty, we don't want to feel it because we don't trust the feeling. Isn't that amazing? It's nature, but we don't trust it. This is the great tragedy. It's the great mistake is that we assume that the unpleasantness of insecurity, uncertainty naturally or should naturally lead to closing it off, denying it, trying to control it or fix it. Instead, so as a different metaphor, to see it as a teacher, like it has something to teach us, to show us, like it's okay. Some of you might have heard me read or just stumbled upon one of the poems that's uh, been translated from Rumi called The Question, at least I think Coleman Barks translates the title as The Question. And it's about this reversal. And in the poem, it's like people see fire 
and they avoid it because they think it's hot. And people who see the cool stream, the cool pool of water, think, ah, that's what I need. Not, not in Minnesota, but <laughs> maybe in Iran or Turkey or wherever Rumi was at the time. You know, that's where I want to go. And then the poem goes, but we're tricked. We're tricked by the outward appearance. So the feeling of insecurity, the feeling of uncertainty, the feeling of anxiety and fear seems bad. Like It seems like I should run from it. I should try to destroy it. I should pretend it isn't there. And that's that shaky, tender place that has something deep and uh, essential to teach us. Let me read a little bit more here. Yeah, boy, he, they come off the other end. <laughs> Sorry, I just assumed people would get that. Yeah, so, so those who go into the fire end up in the water. And those who go into the water end up in the fire. And the water is saying the truth, or the fire is saying the truth, you know, come into me and don't mind the sparks, as the poem goes, right? So it's like uh, we want to notice that, like what voice are we going to trust? This is the problem with our thinking mind. It's not, uh, our mind doesn't have one voice. It has many voices. And some are based on very superficial information, telling us, run, <laughs> As if we know the way to go, you know? <laughs> so we just, you know, we run and do the next thing. But other voices have a, are generally quieter, but they might actually know what they're talking about, like relax. You know, relax into the fire, into the cauldron, into the what you don't want to feel. Relax. How could something that's already the way it is be dangerous? How could that be true? It's already this way, like the yuckiness of the anxiety. It's already that way. So maybe it's already okay that it's that way. Relaxing into it doesn't make it more than what it is, right? Like if we did something despicable and have a lot of remorse and anxiety about what we did, does it become does what we did become worse because we're willing to feel the yucky feeling of having done what we did? You know, the mistake we made or the whatever it was. Does it get worse honestly, directly, immediately acknowledging it? No. It is what it is already. So the question is, do we run and hide and deny and control? Or do we relax and trust it. Although we have the potential to experience the freedom of a butterfly, we mysteriously prefer the small and fearful cocoon of egg. Oh, of ego, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I think I need my glasses. Well, egg sort of works. (laughs) And another another wonderful teacher, Joko Beck, uh, Charlotte Charlotte Beck is her given name. Um, She had a book where she talked about the superstructure. So we have a life, you know, and then, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, we build a house around it, you know, an edifice of thought, of identity around it. And then we wonder why it feels so dank. Because we had a fine house with lots of nice windows, but when you build something around it, it doesn't matter how good the ventilation, how many windows you have, you've got this superstructure around your life. So of course it feels contained and claustrophobic and dank. And this is the thing we do with, like, we're, we are exposed. That's just like, that's the territory of being a human being. Being a human being is this wide, open, exposed, unprotected way of being. I often mention, I'm sure some of you have heard it too many times, but 
growing up as a Catholic, and kind of being into it as a kid, and, and having a pretty good experience going to Catholic schools and you know, connecting with the church as a kid. It seemed relatively healthy for me. Um, so I had lots of statues in my bedroom as a kid, as Catholics tend to, at the, you know, in the 60s, that was the thing. And uh, often, these guys mostly, I think I had Mother Mary too, <laughs> but St. Francis and St. Joseph and who knows who else, I think I even had a St. Mark, you know, they have a, their hearts stick out from their bodies, raw and exposed. And wherever, however that came up, I don't really know the history, but I'm guessing that somebody had some intuition about the real spiritual path is a path of exposure, of being undefended, unprotected, not being in this great edifice of truth, you know, this fortress of truth. And that's kind of what we mistrust about religions, institutional religions, is this fundamentalist like, this is the way. How do we know? Because we, you know, because we've got a big fortress. You know, it's like this tautological thing. Because we're big and because we say we're right, we must be right. Why else would we be so convinced that we're right? You know, how could we be so big if we were wrong? And it's this sort of silly thing. So, you know, and this is in the Tao Te Ching, there's a lot of ancient wisdom traditions that say the same thing, something that is soft, something that doesn't need to be talked about, doesn't need to be, you know, built up in some sort of symbolic way, is the thing. Like even in Islam, you know, they don't, and uh, Judaism to some degree, they don't want to name, they don't want you, I mean, not that they're successful, but they don't want people to create edifices around the truth because it, in a sense, pollutes it or it becomes another ego trip than to protect it, to own it, like, oh yeah, I, I own it. So we can ask yourself when we meet in the small groups again, you can ask yourself, like, uh, this dynamic, again, to really look at it in, in micro ways, not the big anxiety, like the anxiety of death or those you love and the relationships somehow sensing the relationships are fragile that sort of evoke a, a deeper, more primal anxiety that may be harder to begin to play with in this way. We're, like we're learning to relax with it and trust it and actually, like you know you're relaxing with it when you can actually be interested in it. So the, excuse me, the attention, the knowing mind, the sensitive heart is willing to rub up against the unpleasantness of the insecurity or anxiety. And let it, like it's a submission or a surrender. We're putting, putting down our head or we're sort of exposing it Teach me what you have to teach me. What happens when I relax? What happens when I no longer tighten around you? It's like those fearful experiences we had as kids and then started to carry into adult, adulthood, you know, where we had to really let it in. What happens if he or she doesn't love me? You know, what happens, you know, as we remember those years when we began to see that our parents weren't perfect. Some of you, you know, you were three or four, others were in our 20s. But at some point we realized they're just human beings. They can't really take care of us because they're all screwed up too, right? That's a powerful place to see that. Where do we turn? That, that's a kind of exposure. Let me just read a little bit more here from um, Pema Chodron. She says, um, you know, this is the question you can ask yourself. So when we ask ourselves, what do I do when I feel I can't handle what's going on? Where do I look for strength? In what 
and in what do I place my trust? (coughs) And earlier she talks about how we have to make sure that we're not unnerved, that's the word she used, by a sense of freedom, like the freedom to just let the world be the way that it is, uncertain, insecure, ungovernable. Because without at least cracking open the mind that that's okay, that it's okay that life is ungovernable, we may not discover how to work with anxiety. And then she says a little later, openness doesn't come from resisting our fears, but from getting to know them well. Rather than going after those walls and barriers with a sledgehammer, we pay attention to them. With gentleness and honesty, we move closer to those walls. We touch them and smell them and get to know them well. We begin a process of acknowledging our aversions and our cravings. We become familiar with the strategies and beliefs we use to build the walls. What are the stories I tell myself? What repels me? What attracts me? We start to get curious about what's going on without calling what we see right or wrong. That's the telltale sign we're investing in fear, hope and fear. When we're clearly in the world of good and bad, right and wrong, I'm bad that I'm insecure and and anxious, see it as something bad. And when we see or imagine ourselves or other people not afraid, not anxious, we see them, oh yeah, that's what I want. We can observe ourselves with humor not getting overly serious, moralistic, or uptight about this investigation. Year after year, we train in remaining open and receptive to whatever arises. Slowly, very slowly, the crack in the walls seem to widen. And as if by magic, bodhicitta, this natural, inherent freedom of the heart, is able to flow freely. And one of the things that we have to learn to see is kind of the, she doesn't use this phrase, but I think works, sort of these false gods. So the false god of sense experience, pleasant sense experience, because um, me going home, like managing whatever exposure I feel, anxiousness I feel, by having, like lining up some nice sense pleasures tonight, whatever that might be. I have ice cream at home. I have peanuts and chocolate sauce. (laughs) And I, you know, a couple times already, it's come to mind, like as a modification, like as a way of modifying the idea that I've got to lead this workshop, you know, then... Oh yeah, but I, you see? And so there's, and of course there are many li- little sense experiences. So that's one of the fal- false gods. And as long as my mind is directed in that direction, I can't learn from my teacher of anxiety. Because I keep modifying it in a way that's ultimately stressful, but on the surface works a little bit. So I keep going to it. That's the problem. If it didn't work at all, I wouldn't keep going to it. But it does provide a little distraction from the unease of anxiety, lining up sense pleasures, whatever they might be. And then the second false god, or she calls it speech, and uh, All the beliefs, she talks about how we, we use beliefs of all kinds to give us the illusion of certainty about the nature of reality. All the isms. So this is like, I might, some of us sort of create a sense of safety by lining up sense pleasures. Others line up self-righteousness. You know, all the isms. Being right. She's wrong. I've seen myself doing this with my partner, my wife. You know, and about um, conflicts I have with, you know, other people, other groups. And it's like, uh, I, it solidifies me in a way. So 
Because there's often tension when we don't get along with people. It hurts. It, it evokes or it reveals that insecurity. And so we want to patch it up and we patch it up with our beliefs, our self-righteousness. And then it seems like we have ground in the same way that it seems like I have ground when I've lined up some pleasant experiences. I don't have to see anybody. I don't have to be anything for anybody because once I go home, it's just me and my cat, right? My wife's out of town. And, and I, I got this. I've got this, um, this series of shows that I've downloaded that I can watch. You know, I've got magazines I haven't read. I got a comfortable bed. I could even take a walk around the block. You know, and I've got all those, and no one telling me what and when I have to do it. So that's, that is like a counterweight to keep me from feeling the anxiety. So I just pay attention to that lineup of sense experiences. Or we could pay attention to my fixed views, my opinions about things. And that creates some distance from the uneasiness of my heart. And then the last sort of false god that's talked about is, and this is sort of a traditional list that she's talking about here, is the Lord of the mind. She says, uses the most subtle and uh, seductive strategy of all. The Lord of mind comes into play when we attempt to avoid uneasiness by seeking special states of mind. She says you can use drugs, you can use sports or athletics, falling in love, Anything, any one of these ways to alter your state of mind, right? Like in meditation, it's like being, becoming dependent on an expanded state. You see people, even with loving kindness practice, like wanting to get into that kind of expansive state of love for all beings because they can't stand the messiness of their life and the irritation irritation they feel toward the different people in their life and the judgments they have for themselves or others. So they go to this theoretical love for all beings, but it's not rooted or grounded in any way. Because our mind is very, you know, it sort of follows intention. So if we concoct some expanded state, it's a temporary diversion from the real messiness. So most Authentic spiritual traditions, one way or another, often in colorful ways, direct people back into the messy, imperfect world. Like there's no like uh, sense of transcendence that's about get me out of here and into this very lofty place where I don't have mud on my shoes. But it's more freedom with the messiness. Love compassion, forgiveness, appreciation, right with the world as it is. So, to set up the small groups, well, let me just read the last paragraph here, sorry. So, when we don't run from everyday uncertainty, we can contact bodhicitta, this awakened, this natural, inherent awakenedness, freedom of the heart, the heart that isn't afraid of the conditions as they are. When we don't run from everyday uncertainty, we can contact bodhicitta. It's a natural force that wants to emerge. Now that's a good, it's a story, but it's a good story to play with. That freedom, that fearlessness, it wants to emerge, but it takes a willingness to feel the yuckiness of fear. That's the trigger. She says, it is in fact unstoppable. Um... Jack Hornfield uses this image of how grass grows up in the cracks of concrete. It's like it's unstoppable. Life is unstoppable. Well, bodhicitta, this awakenedness, is unstoppable. Once we stop blocking it with ego's strategies, the refreshing water of bodhicitta will definitely begin to flow. We can slow it down. We can dam it up. Nevertheless, whenever there's an opening... Bodhicitta will always appear, like those weeds and flowers that popped up of the sidewalk as soon as there's a crack. I forgot that she uses that same image there. So, for the small groups, what we'll do 
Same thing. We'll have four people per group. So we'll count off by 17, unless maybe some people left at noon. But anyway, 16 or 17. And then, um, so we're, we're looking at either places we've already begun or that we'd like to begin where we feel the, the intensity of insecurity, anxiety, fear isn't so great that our mind could possibly be interested, possibly be willing to feel what happens when we relax there. And then to talk about the movement of bodhicitta, like this enlivening force you felt or you can imagine intuit feeling as you do this work. And probably you've already felt this enlivening force when you've relaxed with what was hard to relax with. When you actually showed some interest with something that you were initially very afraid of. Now we've all done this. This is not something, you know, we haven't done. It's just a question, can you bring this to mind now? So let's take a few minutes. Think about fears, anxieties, dark, heavy, scary places that initially you couldn't be with, couldn't touch, didn't want to touch. Either that you were forced to look at, make peace with, or gradually in a very patient step-by-step way, you gained enough confidence. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.